Vanasu. So this morning we return to merging the mind with space. And I'd like just to highlight a point that may have already caught your attention, but if not, it's worth catching. And that is the very end of the explanation, the sequential explanation of Shamatha without a sign by Padmasambhava in this earth treasure. So it was an actual text that was found, I think, in a cave or a rock or something like that in the 14th century. Uh, on Shamatha without a sign, the very, last, the, the very last line there is in terms of the instruction, and now just bring your mind to space and leave it there. And voila, then that's it. And now achieve Shamatha. Uh, and then in this mind treasure that is just purely a, a Gnostic vision, in the 1860s by Dujum Lingba, two of them actually, the Vajra Essence and then the Intentus Mantabhadra, he picks up right there, exactly where the other one left off, merge your mind with space and leave it there, here, separated by, what, five centuries <laughs> in terms of the appearance of the earth, earth Dharma and the appearance of the mind Dharma. Well, what's five centuries among friends, you know? Uh, then he, he starts with, okay, remember where we left off 500 years ago? Merge your mind with space. With Merge your mind with empty external space. So an utter, utter, utterly smooth, seamless kind of transition between these practices. And going back just briefly to, you know what briefly means, anywhere to up to an hour or so, uh, Going back to settling the mind in its natural state, you recall that that third of the four mindfulnesses is absence of mindfulness. And so again, just to bring that to mind once again, what you're attending to, you've all memorized, I know by now. You're attending to the space of the mind and its contents. The contents are gone, right? When you're really far along the path, when you actually achieve shamatha. The contents are gone. You're just, you're just experiencing the sheer vacuity of the substrate consciousness. And at that point, your coarse mind of belonging to the desire realms, a bit of technical terminology in Buddhism, your coarse mind, which belongs to desire realm, that's where its home is, that's where it's lodged, that's where we are right now. In the desire realm, that dissolves, so the mindfulness that was part and parcel of that coarse mind belonging to desire realm, it dissolved. And so then you slip into that third form of mindfulness, the absence of mindfulness, because that, that coarse mind is, is shut down, and all you're aware of is that sheer vacuity, and that's all that's left but you're not quite finished, then there's an inversion of awareness in upon itself into the substrate consciousness, the fourth type of mindfulness, naturally luminous or self-illuminating mindfulness, because the very nature of the substrate consciousness is luminosity. And now you're resting in this non-conceptual mode, which means there's no explicit demarcation in terms of your experience between your immediate, that is, unmediated experience of the sheer luminosity and cognizance of the substrate consciousness, and the space that it's illuminating. All right. So that space and the substrate consciousness, the substrate and the substrate consciousness, they're really coextensive. So it's not like one is over here illuminating that over there, right? Because that sense of, that very sense of, of bifurcation of me over here and something over there like space, that occurs only afterwards with the, the arousal, the catalyzation of this Klishtamana, or the afflictive cognition. You might recall that, that very, very primitive sense of grasping to self, really primitive, pre-articulate, pre-conceptual. That's when there's that sense of, oh, space over there. You're not even saying it, just that kind of sense. I am over here, space is over there. But prior to that, you're just resting in the substrate consciousness, 
which means the light of your substrate consciousness is coextensive with the space of the substrate, right? But there's the strategy, because you are attending to, there's a sign, you're attending to something, a vector of attention to the space of the mind and its contents, then when all the contents vanish, there's still a sign, and that is the vacuity, and then finally the inversion. Whereas in the shamatha without a sign, you're not attending to the space of the mind, right? It's just really there. It's just resting in, that, in your awareness, which slowly, slowly, or maybe rapidly, becomes more and more unveiled. That is your awareness of your coarse mind, or the kind of the awareness that is part and parcel of the coarse mind, becomes more and more unveiled through the release of grasping until like that hot glowing ember melting down through the snow, snow bank your awareness that did belong to your coarse mind is now dissolved, the coarse mind is, is vanished, and then you just slip into the substrate consciousness, but you're, you're there all the way through. So there's no reference in the teachings on shamatha without a sign of slipping into a sheer absence of mindfulness or just being aware of a sheer vacuity because you're resting in that awareness, the light of the awareness all the way through, all the way down from the top, in, in between, and the bottom. You're always resting in that light. So you're never looking outward at some sign some space of the mind that then eventually becomes empty. So we have these two strategies, right? They're both ending up at the same place. Because sooner or later, you do invert your awareness in upon itself, and there you are resting in your substrate consciousness. But now this practice here, as I'm interpreting it, this merging the mind with space, as I'm interpreting it, because there's not a whole lot to you. I mean, it just it says merge with empty external space. Um, it's kind of a non-duality of those two. And that is, on the one hand, we are merging the mind with space. So clearly, there's no withdrawal. There's no withdrawal from space. If you're merging your mind with it, you can't speak of withdrawing from it. At the same time, we're not really taking it as an object, right? Just merging with, but not attending to it as an object. And while we're merging the mind, merging our awareness for that matter, with the space, there, of course, is this ongoing flow of the awareness of awareness itself. So from the very beginning, it's a non-duality, to the best of our ability. It's a non-duality of that non-objectified space, that sense of the sheer absence of objects, absence of thoughts, and so forth. There's clearly an awareness of that, but simultaneously and utterly in, in, indistinguishable from that, or inseparable from that, is your awareness of awareness. So it's a non-duality as a path of your awareness of awareness and that merging of your awareness with space, but in a non-dualistic fashion. So we're, it's not like we're objecting, objectifying space and then having to get over it and break down the objectification, but we're merging with it in the beginning. So this, among all the practices that we've engaged in, I think this is the one that most strongly warrants the name taking the fruition as the path, because the method itself is so similar to the final fruition of this little phase of shamatha, where again, this, you're experiencing when you achieve shamatha, this non-duality of the awareness of awareness, the awareness of the substrate consciousness, which is self-luminous, self self-illuminating, as it's stated, which also illuminates the substrate, and in a non-dual fashion. So, voila, so. so, I think that's enough preamble here, just a tiny remark, and that is, um, I'd like to speak very little during the next session, so I front-loaded it, now you can be single-tasking rather than multitasking. Uh, but you've seen that I've, I've adorned a very simple practice in layers of clothing. So 
this whole notion, number one, of oscillating with sel dong, sel dong. Okay? I completely added that. I've never even heard anybody teach that. Okay? That's my addition, which means take it off as soon as you can. You know, it's some California edition. Be, beware. Right? But it's, you know, but that kind of thing, it's the same principle as counting the breaths. That's all it is. But use it only for as long as it's helpful. And as soon as you feel that in, in inserting that little cell at the beginning of inhalation, dong at the end of, at the beginning of exhalation, as soon as you see that's kind of more cluttering the flow of your awareness, rather than bringing it back to the present because you keep on wandering, as soon as it's the, in terms of the pros and cons or the cost-benefit analysis, as soon as the cost of it, of cluttering up your mind, is greater than the benefit of keeping you on track, then just drop it immediately. And you won't hurt my feelings. And so that's the first thing to go, right? And then the second thing to go is the very oscillation itself. But the second thing to go, no, I have a number of things to go. I have multiple layers. The second thing to go is as you're releasing into space and then arousing, not retracting, but arousing your awareness, the second thing to go would be release the conjunction of that oscillation, the rhythm of that oscillation, release that, from its conjunction with the in-and-out breath. Because again, insofar as you are deliberately paying attention to the breath, you're not releasing your mind into empty space. Right? So that's again, it can be helpful to keep you, on, uh, keep you engaged, keep you on the mark, and that can be helpful. But when it's not, stop. And that may be this session. That's why I want to talk less and less. Today's Wednesday, so we have, what, another four days uh, this week? I want to talk less and less during the, during the, during the guided meditations, quickly approaching silence, so that you can be freed of having to multitask, listening to me and going back to the meditation, multitasking. So the second thing to go is disconnect the rhythm of the release and the arousal, the release and the arousal. Disconnect that from the breath. Just don't deliberately give any attention to the breath at all. Okay? Third point, third thing to disengage from, is stop the, stop the oscillation altogether. As soon as you have a sense, and it may be this morning, this is not some exalted high state you know, for the distant future, but as soon as you have that sense that when you're releasing awareness into space, that you're very cognizant of being aware. You haven't lost that at all, but it's really relaxed, spacious, open, unimpeded. And then as you uplift, as you arouse, as you sharpen up your awareness of the awareness itself, as you do so, if there's no lessening of your sense of the expansiveness, the unimpededness, the openness of space, you're still very present with that, your awareness or your mind having merged with space. So if you're not losing either one in any, either of the oscillations, you're not losing the awareness of awareness at all as you're releasing into space, and as you arouse your awareness with this special interest in the awareness of awareness, there's no lessening of your experience of that unimpededness, that objectless open expanse. In other words, there's no oscillation anymore. You really, there's no difference to the releasing and arousal. When you're releasing, you're still very aroused. When you're aroused, you're still very released. In which case, stop the oscillation. And then be happy. Then just rest. And then just do what he said. Just merge your mind in empty external space. And that's all. But that's so short, you don't even need to remember the words because you're just doing it. And then just do it. Okay? 
So now I don't need to speak much at all during the session. Please find a comfortable position. Before we launch into space, let's ground the awareness in the earth element. As you allow your awareness to descend into the body, right down to the ground, then filling the space of the body, settling your body in its natural state, and continuing to settle the speech, the mind in the natural state, and then for a little while calm the discursive mind with mindfulness of breathing.
beginning with the exhalation. Your eyes partially open, but resting vacantly. Release your awareness into space in all directions, without boundary, without object. Releasing into an absence of objects and absence of thoughts, whatever thoughts come to mind, gently, subtly, release them instantly. And to the best of your ability, maintain an ongoing flow of non-conceptual awareness as you release into space with every outbreath, and without contracting, without withdrawing, simply accentuating, heightening your awareness of awareness. Arouse and release, arouse and release.
see that your mind is especially silent as you come to the end of the out-breath, releasing and releasing until there's nothing more to give away. And then see that you don't help the breath come in. You don't pull it in. But just allow the in-breath to flow in of its own accord.
Onasu. I thought I'd read just a short passage here from the Vajra Essence, which is very relevant even to our, present, our practice today in light of the fact that there is such a strong resemblance between the method and the fruition of actually achieving shamatha. So this is the Vajra Essence after he's explained the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, or in that context he calls it taking awareness and, excuse me, appearances and awareness as the path. Then he says at the conclusion here, he says in this way, now quote, 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 the rope of mindfulness. So again, suggesting a vector when you speak, and this is a classic me- metaphor, the rope of mindfulness that attaches your mind to the object of shamatha, the object of mindfulness. So the rope connects the two, keeps you connected, right? The, but, and, what, and so what is that rope connecting your awareness with? The object of meditation, which in settling the mind is space of the mind and its objects or its contents, the rope of mindfulness and firmly, firmly maintained attention, that rope, is dissolved by the power of meditative experiences. Just as you evolve in the practice, that vector, that sense of connectedness to your object, dissolves, but not because you're spacing out or falling into dullness, because you're coming to the end of the, pe- end of the, end of the line, actually about to achieve shamatha. So it's dissolved by the power of meditative experiences, until finally the ordinary mind of an ordinary being disappears, as it were. So very clear, isn't it? The ordinary mind, of an ordinary mind of an ordinary being, that's your coarse mind, the one you're very familiar with, the one that psychologists study, uh, that disappears, as it were. It melts, right? Consequently, so now we know, consequently, compulsive thinking subsides, that's gone, and roving thoughts dissolve into the space of awareness. Which, of course, is none other than the substrate. You then slip into the vacuity of the substrate in which self, yourself, others, and objects disappear. So now a complete absence of appearances, just the vacuity. By clinging to the experiences, so there's some grasping here, subtle, subtle grasping, by clinging to the experiences of vacuity and luminosity, the space and the luminosity, by and this is green. So it must be over in that corner of the woods. Ah, uh-huh, here we are back. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Hola, so. So you slip into the vacuity of that substrate, the alaya, in which self, others, and objects disappear by clinging to the experiences of vacuity and luminosity while looking inward. So now you were just resting in that vacuity, right? But now you invert by looking inwards, drawing your awareness in upon itself by clinging to the experiences of vacuity and luminosity while looking inward. But by, even though you're looking within, you've not lost your awareness of the vacuity, right? So you're slipping right into that non-duality. You're not withdrawing from space. You're maintaining that awareness of space, but drawing into the luminosity with, which is coextensive with that space. By clinging to the experiences of vacuity and luminosity while looking inward, the appearances of self, others, and objects vanish. This is the substrate consciousness. Is that clear? Is it totally clear? Let's see, is it clear? Oh, good. I'm glad. 
This is the substrate consciousness. Some teachers say that the substrate to which you descend, and some of you have already had that kind of experience of the descent of your awareness, and not in a bad sense, but just a grounding, a deepening, and approaching the substrate, substrate consciousness. Some teachers say that the substrate to which you descend is freedom from conceptual elaboration. It's a technical term, which I'll get to in a moment. Some people give it this, this, this label, freedom from conceptual elaboration, or it's called Dürdel in Tibetan, uh, and Dür means conceptual elaboration, and Del means freedom. So mine is a very literal translation. Others give it a translation which is not wrong, it's just a little bit um, not so precise. They simply call it simplicity. Simplicity. And of course it is simplicity. But it's a simplicity that results from the absence of conceptual elaboration. But again, this is not self-explanatory. i get to it in a moment. So some teachers say that the substrate to which you descend is freedom from conceptual elaboration or the one taste, another technical term, the one taste. But others say it is ethically neutral. Whatever they call it, in truth, you have come to the essential nature of the mind. So that is really exactly what Tenshin Rinpoche said at the end of his discussion of shamatha, in which he said, do I need to go back and see it? But some call it, oh, this is the way to enlightenment, just, you know, this is the way to enlightenment. But I, Penjian Loso Chukiyansan, I say, this is coming to understand the relative nature of the mind. Substrate consciousness, right? So here we have this great scholar with many, many teachers, one of the greatest Galupa scholars and contemplatives since Tsongkhapa, the Penjian Rinpoche, Penjian Losan Chukiyansan, describing this practice and then saying, what does it culminate in? Realizing the relative nature of your consciousness, relative nature of mind. And here's a person who had no teachers, Dujun Lingba, or you can just say Padmasambhava, saying exactly the same thing, but from a very different trajectory, but exactly the same thing. You come to the essential nature of a mind, but clearly not the essential nature, the ultimate nature, clearly not Rikpa, because he's just said, this is the substrate consciousness. So that's not an interpretation, that's what he said, right? So now let's just review very briefly, and then we'll, we'll break for the morning. These two, these two terms, I mean, they seem to be quite loaded, and in fact they are. That is, some teachers say, freedom from conceptual elaboration or the one taste. Well, those are not just wor- those are not kind of just vague words. They refer to two out of the four stages of the four yogas of Mahamudra. The four yogas of Mahamudra. That's the map of Mahamudra. Uh, and the map there is... The first is the, of the four yogas. The first yoga is the yoga of single-pointedness. That's what it's called, Sechikpa, single-pointedness, first yoga. Okay? The second is freedom from conceptual elaboration. That's the second yoga. The third is the yoga of one taste. And the fourth is the yoga of non-meditation. And that's when you're just about to achieve perfect awakening. Buddhahood. Okay? So these are four sharply demarcated, clearly demarcated phases of realization on the path of Mahamudra, starting with single-pointed, the yoga of single-pointedness. Now, that yoga of single-pointedness, so, what, so just backing up here for a moment, so Dujum Lingba, or this is Padmasambhava again, ch- uh, being channeled through Dujum Lingba, uh, is saying, okay, you've just achieved shamatha. But now this mind treasure is being manifested in the 1860s, so 150 years ago. 
He's saying, this is what you've actually realized. If you actually achieve shamatha, what you realize is relative nature of mind, essential nature of a mind, which is substrate consciousness. But some people, not knowing any better, not having the big picture, being really quite confused, they'll take this very nice but very small realization, which isn't even yet on the path. It's again like the on-ramp onto the freeway, but you're not on the freeway yet, as Jujum Lingma makes very, very clear elsewhere. You're just, you just made it to the on-ramp, and then some people are saying, oh, this is like second or third stage of Mahamudra, which is way, way up the path. That's like 500 miles down the road, you know, with direct realization of Rikpa, of pristine awareness. So this happens an awful lot. And this is in the 1860s in Tibet, when there were 6,000 monasteries and, you know, hundreds of thousands of monks all over the place. And yogis, I think, you know, in terms of the really good, really good caves, there were no vacancy signs over all of them. You know, they were really filled. You know, there were a lot of yogis. So even in a very a time of many, many fine teachers, no constraints on the Dharma at all, no Chinese communists, no nothing. It was, you know, quite nice. Even then there was a lot of confusion. And this is what Penjinabhaj is saying in the 17th century. And this is what Jujun Lingba is saying in the 19th century. There's a lot of confusion about this. So please don't put the Rolls-Royce grill on your VW bug. The VW bug is shamatha. Don't say it's you know, something exalted, some of the third or fourth stage, way, way up on the path of Mahamudra. Because then you won't, well, then you won't know where to go. You'll be lost. So my own teacher, Gyatrinabhachi, Doman Gyatrinabhachi, in his commentary to a, another classic 17th century by a great Kagyupa master, who was also a Dzogchen master, uh, that it, in that his name was Kamachame. Uh, in the book that I translated under the title Naked Awareness, then Gyatrodamuchi, my teacher, comments the stage of the, the, stage of the yoga of single-pointedness is as follows. He, he describes it as follows. The first stage, so that small, medium, and great stage of this yoga of single-pointedness. It's a little bit technical, but why not? We're intelligent people. Uh, the, the stage... The stage of the yoga of single-pointedness is as follows. The first stage of single-pointedness occurs with the accomplishment of shamatha, wherein one single-pointedly attends to one's own awareness, which is primordially unceasing and luminous. I'll read that again, because it's really important. This is on the path of Mahamudra, which is really the core wisdom path for the Kagyut tradition, but also assimilated in the Sakya tradition very strongly. And we see in the Galupa tradition, by way of Penchen and himself, also assimilated Mahamudra. So that goes through all the new translation schools of the Sakya, Gelu, and Kagyut. Mahamudra is very strong. Dzogchen is kind of the, the Nyingmapa's baby, although the Kagyupas definitely got into it as well, and some others, like his holiness, who is now a hybrid of you know, Gelupa and Nyingma, and who knows what else. Um, so the Mahamudra really has a lot of, uh, has a lot of currency, that it's, it was practiced really in all four schools, certainly three out of four, uh, the new, new translation. So again, the single, the, what is the first, what's the launching pad, which is going to be the basis for the, all of your Mahamudra realization to enlightenment itself? What's your foundation? It's the first yoga, and the first yoga, the yoga of single-pointedness, is divided into three phases, small, medium, great, and the initial one, the first stage, again, this is a direct quote from Gyatrodamuchi. The first stage of, of single-pointedness single occurs with the accomplishment of shamatha. And what's that like? Wherein, one single-pointedly attends to one's own awareness, you know exactly what that means by now, which is primordially unceasing and luminous. So very clear. 
So this shows, and, and I have a number of other very juicy quotes coming that I'm going to save. You know, coming, coming over the next few days. I have to fill something in the morning. I can't just leave it kind of dangling. But that's it for right now. But it makes it very clear that Samat is absolutely indispensable for Dzogchen, unless Dujum Lingba is wrong. And he did leave 13 disciples to Rainbow Body, which I don't know anybody for the last several, several hundred years who's done that. So if he was wrong, it's kind of hard to see how he could be wrong and other people who have not led anybody to Rainbow Body are right. Because there are a lot of people who disagree with him. But I don't see any of their disciples achieving Rainbow Body, whereas by general consensus, nobody, this is not a contested point, uh, 13 of Dujum Lingbas did achieve Rainbow Body, let alone, they say a thousand of his disciples became Vididas, which is quite astonishing. Really. So an absolutely consummate teacher. So if one wants to disagree with him, of course one is free to. But you might want to wonder, you might wonder, um, are you the authority that's refuting Dujun In which case, congratulations, you got a lot of chutzpah. Or are you referring to somebody else who is a greater teacher than Dujun Lingba? And, and who is that? Who is that? You know? And how many of their disciples did they, did they lead to becoming vidyadatas and actually manifesting something that's public? They actually displayed rainbow body. So there's more to come. but I'm saving it. <laughs> I'm not going to keep you here all morning. So enjoy your morning. I'll see you folks at 10 o'clock. We'll we're keeping our regular rhythm this morning for the interviews. See you this afternoon.